This is the University of Georgia Griffin News, brought to you over WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, The Rock 88.9 FM, and stream live on WKURadio.com. This program is to update our listeners on the many and exciting things at the University of Georgia Griffin with Dr. Lou Honeycutt and his guests. The program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farms and Murray and Company Realtors. And now today's program with Dr. Lou Honeycutt. Well, good morning, Griffin Spalding and the surrounding area. Welcome back into the Griffin Campus News. We are back with another great show this week. We have someone who's here nearly as much as me, but he's got so much information, we just have to keep bringing him back to to share more (laughs) more about it. Today, I have Bob Westerfield with me. He is the Extension Consumer Horticulturalist, excuse me, Extension Coordinator at the College of Environmental, Agriculture and Environmental Sciences, UGA Griffin Campus. We have the longest title at the University of Georgia that that ever. (laughs) So welcome back to the show. Well, good morning. Glad to be back. We were we were talking a couple of weeks ago about uh, fall gardening and things like that, and now today I see the topic that Elizabeth put down is seasonal transitioning of your garden. Let's start out by saying it's hot. It is hot, My and gosh. Uh, it, it's hard to think about fall in any aspect when it's been <laughs> ninety. You know, I think Saturday they're talking about ninety five, ninety six degrees, and of course it's been like that. Um, yeah, and we focused a lot on the vegetable gardens over maybe the past several shows that I've been on, but I, sure. I figured you know for the ornamental folks out there which we all enjoy our ornamentals, uh, we'd kind of focus on that this time and, and talk about, you know, some things that we might want to be thinking about doing as fall is supposedly around the corner. <laughs> exactly. No, that's great. You know, Sanford Stadium, they're, they're estimating 96 degrees at the start of the game on wow. Saturday. Part of the stadium's in the sun. I do not. It's one game I'm glad I'm not at Sanford Stadium for. Uh, that's going to be quite warm. Yeah, I'd want to have some kind of a box seat with air conditioning. Oh, my gosh. Last year, <laughs> several of our the people off the Griffin campus were there, and I'd see their Instagram posts, and it was miserable so the game was good but the weather was you know funny little tip just on the uh, the sanford stadium that reminds me because everybody has asked me in the past i get this question about you know we really love those shrubs that are down there on (laughs) on the sidelines and is that some kind of special you know boxwood that uga grows or whatever talking about between the hedges right i kind of laugh i go yeah that's a real special shrub those hedges that's actually a privet which is what we have invasive (laughs) and all over the state of georgia and probably half of the southeast so it's uh, actually not a special shrub but uh i guess we take care of it specially it is just um, an introduced species from, I guess, Japan or whatever, but it's a privet, which has uh, prolific in its ability to um, seed itself and oh then be eaten by birds and, 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 and distribute all across the, the state of Georgia. It is everywhere. Not as bad as kudzu, but it, it may exactly. be a close second. It's, I don't it's know. getting there. And I'm told, to, and you may have told me this, but the privet hedge was brought in to put around outhouses or privets originally to kind of hide or box off that that part of the the property but they just got out of out of hand yeah it's like a lot of things you know we we have to be careful what we wish for and um you know there's many examples out there where we brought something in and introduced it to try, for a benefit and it came out you know came back to kind of bite us and, sure and prove it's certainly one of those you know as far as durability goes it's hard to beat oh that tree. you almost can't kill it you can cut it back to the ground and it'll come right back out of it and you know there's a lot of people still use those as shrubs in the landscape but un- unfortunately you know they they do have the ability to reproduce like gangbusters sure. 
pictures like bamboo. It always looks good when you buy the little bamboo plant in the store, yeah. and then you plant it, and two years later, your whole property is bamboo. Yeah, when I get the bamboo call about how do I get rid of this, I usually just tell people, you need to move. move. You exactly. Go to another state or another county or something. So. That's in Texas when we did grazing. Uh, we do analysis of grazing for, for ranchers that bought really small properties in Texas and put a lot of cattle on them, and right. they would say, what, what can we do? And my, my father-in-law at the time would say, don't say what you're going to say, but I would say, move. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're going to do. So I get it. Same kind of thing. So it's still hot, or it's really hot, especially this week and next week. For you know, yeah. September seems to always kind of mess with us a little bit, but October is always so great. But, um, but I'm a big ornamentals fan too, mm-hmm. so I'm glad we're going to talk about this. But <clears throat> I'm not. I told you I'm a lazy gardener, so I'm, <laughs> vegetables are not really my thing, but ornamentals right. certainly are. And just to back up a bit, um, last weekend or the 23rd uh, and 24th, Becky Griffin had the great. Georgia pollinator count. I'm getting it wrong, I think. Right. But it's been an incredible response that she's had. And the interesting thing about mine, I did it. It was probably the only 15 minutes that I can remember in a long time that I've just sat and stared. (laughs) Even my dogs were like, what is going on? But the interesting thing for me, I have so many bees in my yard constantly. That 15-minute period, not one. Oh, wow. So like butterflies. Have and, what's <laughs> exactly. And then shortly after that, bees again. Right. So I don't know. But but the response has been great. And um, and I can't remember. I think it's greatpollinator.org. But people can go out and look at the results. It's been incredible. Statewide. Yeah, it, it, it's a pretty incredible thing. And I, I think folks tend to sometimes be remiss about the, the importance of pollinators. But, I mean, in all honesty, it's what's what's feeds the world, if you will, because they're so important when it comes to pollinating our crops and vegetables and things like that. Uh, and, and and there are ways to enhance that, and that's kind of you know, a little bit about what the study's talking about. Even in my yard, I mean, my wife's sort of the landscaper in our house. Um, you know, I do it for a living. When I go home, I don't want to mess with it. But she does it all. <laughs> we have so many flowering plants in our landscape that uh, it's just like, um, you know, a zoo of insects coming sure. through there between the hummingbirds and then all the different insect pollinators. It's incredible. And, of course, my vegetable garden right down the the hill from there uh, benefits from that sure and so um, i want to go back to pollinators but you and when last time you were on here you mentioned the hummingbird moth one of the what is yes, called hummingbird moth. yes i did and the cool thing is last night i'm out watering and it's almost dark and i I'm, i thought man that hummingbird's getting awful close which i love right. when they get calm enough or tame enough to get close but i looked down it was it had to be one of those hummingbird i bet moths, it was because it was a moth and it looked just like yeah, a hummingbird. it has a long style yes. that gets into the plant yeah almost scary it looks like it, something that could carry your children it off, does but, but it was uh, awesome it, it is pretty cool looking yeah and they will just kind of hover just like a hummingbird and you're thinking is that a hummingbird out this late and it, sure enough it's that moth so. they do and there, the thing that made me notice it wasn't a hummingbird there wasn't the wing noise that mm-hmm. you typically hear something that's why exactly. i look closer i'm like oh that's what bob told me about yeah. So see, you, cool. taught, you oh, teach you me every time you're on, and that, that was a great deal. <laughs> Never but. know. Okay, so let's let's spend a little more time on pollinators, or we can spend a lot of time. Mm-hmm. We can spend a whole show on pollinators, yes, but you know, I really do think most people do not understand the importance. For like, for example, my yard, I've told you a million times on here, the tornado of 11 cleared the property, yes. took the t- what little topsoil there was. So when I came four years ago, it was a clean slate. I went to our research garden and looked at what was growing and being successful there started planting pollinating mm-hmm. plants or plants attract pollinators hence my yard other than the 15 minutes of the pollinator mm-hmm. thing is just full of bees and everything else which i love people that come see me aren't so excited about it because they just believe if you walk out you're gonna get attacked right, by exactly. everything in the yard I'm knock on wood I, that doesn't happen and, and typically when you get attacked is when you're trying to flick it away yeah. and you're doing something and trap it in your fingers or something but so 
I hope, I wish, we need to figure out some way to get everyone to understand having those things in your yard is a good thing. And you mentioned your garden below your flowers, so kind of tie those two together. Yeah, um, you know, I I think having diversity in your yard is really important to bringing in pollinators and other beneficial insects as well. Um, We like to plant a lot of color around our landscape, but I actually also plant it down in the garden. Um, In our garden full of vegetables, we're always going to have things like zinnias and marigolds, um, sometimes petunias and other flowering plants. Um, also, even to the extent of having sunflowers in there because okay. they're great at not only bringing pollinators but beneficial insects. Um, one of the things about color, it just seems to be very attractive to insects, and they do pick up and can see color. And uh, by having that diversity of different colors, I think you attract an assortment of insects in the landscape. I think the key, you know, when you're wondering what should I plant, um, is try to, as much as you can, have, you know, seasonal color um, to where you can not only just have the summer blooming things like we have right now, um, but something that maybe blooms early spring. And I'm I'm thinking in terms of things like even forsythia and, um, you know, azaleas, and then then into the fall, uh, maybe going in with some some fall flowering plants and and when we say fall again it's kind of um it seems like it's uh, talking about it with 98 degrees out but it's around the corner sure uh and it's going to be time to be planting some 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 fall annuals if you like uh color we we think typically of pansies snapdragons and, and things like that but i think you know not just having one monoculture of flowering plants but maybe have an assortment of perennials and annuals that continue to draw the beneficial insects and you know you're, you're mentioning about some people just fear the fact of bringing in bees or any type of stinging insect and sure i mean we all know they can bite and probably have been bitten but um in in most cases you know their objective is not to hunt you down <laughs> and they're not going to eat you they're not going to sting you if they can help it along the avenue of the wasp family i mean it's it's, it's there are kamikazes because a lot of those it's suicide if they sting you sure. um you know particularly like a honeybee you know they you often hear that the stinger will come out well that kills the bee because it pulls out the digestive tract and some wasps similar to that some can sting multiple times but they, they certainly don't want to spend their energy hitting you and most times you know encounters with with bee stings or when we do something stupid, like sure. I've been known to do, you know, you bump into one when you're on the tractor or uh, you happen to be, you know, trying to get rid of one swatting it and boom, they they, they take a, a, a fast and fury. The only exception to that is I just don't like yellow jackets. I don't know if that's our, our man over here, Tony, in the Georgia Tech or producer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or or what it is, but um, they can just sometimes be mean. They, sometimes I have they're just had mean. my day with yellow jackets enough to say I just don't like them. I know that in one way or another they're beneficial, but boy, I have had some fun driving over those mounds before sure no i i agree and um and tony sorry about the shot at, <laughs> yeah, at georgia tech there that. but i am wearing yellow today so if, <laughs> yeah. if that helps but um so the good news about it, i mean it is hot it's it's unbearably hot at some points of the day but but at the mornings and evenings are cooling off now finally so at least we do get a little bit of relief when the which is why i was out watering at dark when i saw the hummingbird moth but um watering butterfly bush mm-hmm. uh, but so we're starting to think ornamentals start to think fall gardens of all types but tell me if i'm wrong and please do tell me if i'm wrong typically when when i go into um like a neighborhood with a lot of big old fancy houses and i see these really landscaped yards with one level of things and one type of things like the monoculture Mm -hmm. like you're talking about but even heights and levels i'm of the opinion the messier it looks the better almost i mean you Mm -hmm. have different levels different types butterflies like specific types of plants bees like others What's the ideal, and I know the answer is, well, there's really no ideal, but what's the (laughs) ideal look of a yard? 
Well, for you know, I, th- I think you have to take into a number of things into account. You know, we're talking about one hand being attractive to maybe beneficial wildlife, if it be birds or, in- or insects, bees and things like that, but also what is aesthetically pleasing. And to me, like we talked about the monoculture of maybe just having what I call mushroom shrubs, you know, the, <laughs> sure. the little yopons or even the, the privet we talked about and boom, 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 all in a straight line in front of the house. Uh, well, you know, we can call that landscape, but it's not attractive. <laughs> um, you really want a diversity. And, um, you know, I started out as a landscape architect and so we learned all about you know texture and structure and shape and all that stuff and and mixing that in appropriately really makes a difference in where the the landscape looks i like to create a cascading effect which means maybe putting taller shrubs towards the back uh, and then slowly cascading down to a lower level of shrub to something medium sized to maybe annuals in front of that to, and, and everything should sort of complement. You know, you don't want clashing in color. Now, I'll admit right off the bat, I'm about colorblind when it comes to picking <laughs> all this out. My, my wife is an expert, though. And our garden is sort of like an English garden at our house, which is, I guess a good word would be, it's sort of kleptic. Okay. Um, there's mixes and matches of all different colors, but it seems to flow great. And one of the things that makes our garden work, I think, around our landscape, around our house, is the hardscape that we incorporate. So not in addition to picking out some really good flowering and attractive plants, um, my wife is the master, I think we talked about this one time, of reusing things. Sure. Be it an old plow or a wheelbarrow and then tons of rocks. My farm is like Rock City. And so we can get all the rocks <laughs> we want from out of the fields. And so she's got um, basically almost look like drain beds out of rocks. Sure. Attractive boulders placed in certain areas. And, and complement that with some you know flowers and, and shrubs that creep over those rocks and it looks really good. So one of the one of the keys, you know, people are saying maybe out there that, you know, gosh, this sounds difficult. I have no experience in that. But you mentioned earlier about going over to the research garden here on the Griffin campus. Um, what do they say, you know, mimicking something? Yeah, absolutely. Flattery. Yeah, so come out to the Griffin garden, walk around. A lot of the plants, if not all of them, are labeled and, and get a feel for what you like, what you'd like to incorporate. Also go to some of the, you know, the more fancy neighborhoods maybe and see how some of the landscapes that have successfully been planted look like or one of the botanical gardens and then you know take pictures and then say hey maybe i can do this at my house and incorporate the parts that you like in your own landscape sure that and i agree i mean that when i went out to the research garden <clears throat> right after i moved when i was looking to put in the we have a pollinator garden just as you enter on the right and of course that was what i was mostly interested in yes. and the rest of the garden is incredible too with a lot of pollinating plants or pollinator plants but the pollinator garden itself was incredible and the labels helped me tremendously because i would go either to the big box or to mill pond or one of the other right. nurseries around and say hey do you have xyz and was able to really incorporate a whole lot of those now some didn't work well in my house because of the it's it's mostly red clay right. <laughs> it's there's not a lot of topsoil left but exactly some did but i learned the first year what wouldn't and i went back with other things amended the soil and put in a lot of hardscape i agree with mm-hmm. you i told you i told you all the time or tell you all the time i'm a lazy gardener mm-hmm. a lot of the area that i was either going to have to turf or, or amend really heavily and do i use gravel and boulders right. and different things that you can get relatively if they're on your property you can get sure. free if not i had to get some in but they're relatively inexpensive a little bit of labor it's really easy to maintain rock absolutely <laughs> and, and, and in addition to that i think you know just using some attractive mulch around the flowers really ties it in to the rest of the landscape whether it be you know turf grass that you've got a nice uh, i like sweeping curves not not super tight curves in the landscape pattern so i like broad long curves and rather than straight lines and then having an attractive mulch be it pine bark pine straw whatever you have on hand uh to kind of 
accent the beds versus the turf really makes it stand out and look sharp. Uh, one thing you said a second ago was, you know, about the conditions that you had at your at your own sure. home and the plant soils and so forth. And I think, you know, before someone just runs out, even though they spotted some plants <laughs> they like, they need to take a few things into consideration. And that would be basically what are the growth habits of the plant that you're interested in? Um, you know, we, we've got a wonderful selection of ornamentals. We can grow almost virtually everything in the state of Georgia, except for a few exceptions that grow up north or way south. But at the end of the day, you just have to site them properly. And, you know, there's some plants that just would prefer to get some afternoon shade or maybe full shade. Some do fine in full sun. Some might take a damp area if it's in a low bottom, and, and some would prefer to have a kind of a dry, arid zone. Um, you know, by consulting either county extension agents or a lot of the publications that UGA has online, you should be able to find the information not only about where that plant would best survive, but also the real important thing, which always gets overlooked, particularly by architects, landscape architects, is how big does that plant get when exactly. it matures? Because how many times have you seen a plant that, you know, looked great at when it was in a two-gallon, turns out to be a 100-foot-tall plant and, and grows its outgrows its space. So that's a real key is, you know, in 10, 15 years, what is this going to look like? And, and a lot of people overlook that. I think most people overlook it, especially when I when I look. And, it, and I look with a different eye maybe than some, and I know you do as well. If I'm walking up to someone's home, I notice trees that are planted right at the corner of the house. Trees that are planted right at the corner of the house. Yeah. And you want to say to them, Especially if it's a new planting, could you not move that out? Like, you know, do you not know that's going to get 60 foot wide at the bottom? I think it's going to stay in that little one gallon size. I think one of the most overused plants, at least has been in the state of Georgia here recently of last few years, has been Leyland Cypress. Sure. And, you know, they're a wonderful um, conical tree. It's often used as a Christmas tree, actually. But it's a tree that can get big, and, and people will plant those things down a driveway on, you know, four-foot centers thinking, well, I'm going to have a nice little, you know, blocked fence here from my neighbors. I won't have to look at them. Exactly. And sure, that works for four or five years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden those things decide they want to grow. Um, you know, as well as I do, on the campus here, we've got them over 125 feet Absolutely. tall and 30 feet wide. They are not little trees. And so, you know, Leyland's one of those that does great as long as you give it all the room in the world to grow. When you jam it together, you know, you're going to have issues. And that's the thing. If you plan for the adult size of whatever it is you plant, they're they're incredible. But when you squish them all together, even as when you plant on two foot centers, maybe right. and it's something because you want a barrier, or you want that. It doesn't always work out that way because then you spend your adult life or the rest of the adult life of that plant trimming it, doing everything you can to it, which isn't the best thing for it. You know, a great <laughs> example of this, and a lot of it's gone now. But uh, back when we had the Olympics here in was it ninety six, um, they just spent unbelievable amounts of money on the landscape going into Atlanta and this okay. is on the you know the, the highways coming down the little hills of the bridges and so forth and they they spent so much money and they jammed those plants in there like Yikes. on two foot centers and I, I you know knowing my plants I'm riding down the road and go that's going to be a problem <laughs> I mean it didn't it looked great for the Olympics sure but about two years later they were calling me to come out and diagnose what's wrong with these I'm like well for one you got about a hundred thousand too many <laughs> exactly uh, they were growing together they were dying they were just having all kinds of issues and 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 that's the key when you do a proper landscape regardless of what you choose you know at, at planting time it should look fairly open um, you should have a lot of space between your plants it might look a little bit wimpy but just imagine a couple of years these are going to fill out and, and it's going to have room and space to grow um, you know landscape architects and, and I'm not blaming them but uh, but under pressure they tend to overplant or, or plan to overplant because they really want it to look premier at sure opening day of, of the landscape and uh, sometimes you know that that involves putting a little bit too much material in sure and i think we've become it's the same way with fast food or anything else so if you wait in the line at 
at McDonald's for more than a minute, you're mad. I mean, it's, we, <laughs> yeah. we've become this society. And, you know, we can roll turf out. You can have a yard in a day. Yeah, you can have a you yard can have all, any, If you're landscaping at the same time, you can have a landscape in a day. But as a homeowner, everybody wants it to look like it's supposed to look in 10 years on day one. And if you plant to look at like it's going to look in 10 years, you got problems in two or three years. That's if right. people would just plant the way it's supposed to look in day on day one, We'd have a lot, left. but it has those vacant spots and those. They, it doesn't look full to, right. to them. And I mean, most of us don't have the money to buy mature shrubs. They exactly. do sell them. Actually, if you want to spend a few thousand dollars per bush, um, you can make it mature in one day. But uh, again, most people aren't going to do that. They, they need to buy the little, you know, ones that were grown from cuttings or in a one or two gallon, and uh, they're going to take a couple of years to, to get up to size. Exactly. <clears throat> we have back back home, way back in Texas. There's a uh, there's a lot of large ranches, and one of the the really rich oil people bought a, a really pretty ranch but he didn't like where some of the roads were so this tells you what you can do if you have enough money so he bought one of the machines that digs mature trees and literally picked up mature trees from other parts of the property and brought them in to close off that road and so within a week it looked like it would have mm-hmm. it's been there for 40 years but he spent a fortune yeah. doing that the rest of us amazing. can't afford to do that it was amazing and not all of them lived but but most of them did because but there was intensive water it was an adult tree they were right. moving it was a, a horribly expensive and time-consuming thing, but he had the money to do it. You Most can, of us have you, to buy the – You can make it happen. <laughs> you can make it happen. Most of us have to deal with the little maple tree that is going to take 20 years to get yeah. where it needs to be. And we right. just got to accept that and go on. You know, on. you're talking about trees. I mean, and we're talking trees where, I mean, at least at your age, my age, we're, we're kind of planting them for our grandchildren, sure. I guess, our children, because, you know, we're not going to get a, a 100-year-old oak tree uh, above us. So you have to think in terms of, hey, if I do want something – faster growing than say you know an oak tree maybe i need to look at something a little bit more um faster in growth habit and i'm thinking in terms of something like an elm tree or something that can grow rapidly but uh yeah there that comes into play too is you know just how you know and i'm the pot calling the kettle black when it comes to patience i don't have any (laughs) my wife will tell you so um you know i kind of want it to be done quick and, and and to look good but um you would have to you know think about plant selection um there's plenty of things out there that grow very slow and others again a lot of literature that we have at uga um, extension publications will talk about the rate of growth and it'll say you know fast slow moderate or whatever and that's something you might want to pay attention to um, if you're you know if you're really wanting to get a nice shaded yard um, certainly you want to pick those plants that are going to grow rapidly another example might be something like a river birch which grows i was just fixing to mention mm-hmm. river birches bodie yeah. panisi of course on our campus gave me some bur- river birch sticks i just come mm-hmm. here and she said she had them wrapped in paper Paper towels. If you plant these, they'll grow. I'm like, yeah, all right. <laughs> but I did, and and it's been amazing. Where I had some topsoil moved in, it was piled by one of them for a while, and then we got it leveled off. That one in three years is about twenty foot tall yeah. and multi stem. It's beautiful. But then the ones that didn't get quite as much nutrition are about four or five feet, but still pretty fast growing. Right. And I think they're a beautiful Relative. tree. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they really fill out and really leaf out really nicely. So I mean, yeah, if people pay attention and look but again it took three years uh, i could mm-hmm. i probably could have bought one that big but that, that i got a stick from bodie for nothing <laughs> right stuck it in the ground <laughs> it, and you know we talk about seasonal color and things like that um it's not just in the flowers of course you know some people think of fall they think of fall color and they're thinking of leaves and that is, is certainly the case um you know if you really want some really 
prolific color in the landscape, I would be thinking in terms of maple trees, particularly the hybrids that we have out there. Some of the autumn blaze, autumn orange varieties just get a brilliant color. Um, but it's not just the leaves and the foliage. I'm thinking in terms of the bark can be um, absolutely can be interesting. You just mentioned river birch. Uh, it has the exfoliating bark, just like a crepe myrtle does, where the bark, bark peels, kind of almost looks a little bit like camouflage, mm-hmm. and that's kind of an attractive feature in, in the winter landscape. Some of the large ornamental grasses, even though they go dormant, um, they still look pretty as they're moving around in the wind in the, in, in the wintertime. So, again, you can think of seasonal color. Um, you can mix and match um, different contrasts of shape and also texture. And texture being, you know, is something soft and fluffy, sort of when you think about maybe like a boxwood, or does it have very coarse leaves like a holly plant that's got maybe sure. pointy, coarse leaves? Putting those two together uh, sometimes makes a great contrast and makes it stand out yeah and you mentioned ornamental grasses grasses are are my you know native grasses or range grasses are my mm-hmm. forte but i love ornamental grasses i think they they don't get enough kudos in the, the landscape that they should and what i try to get people to not do is cut them as soon as they go dormant cut them right. down to the ground which you can but you miss that winter noise that little rustling sound they get browns and golds and oranges that when absolutely they go dormant and they make a winter texture and color that that needs to just be left in place i wait till spring to cut my back when i lived in south georgia you could always tell when it was getting later in the fall because people would actually burn off the uh sure the the pampas grass and stuff you see big plumes of smoke going up there goes the pampas grass Uh, but yeah the the reality is even if you didn't cut down those ornamental grasses they would still come back in the spring it'd look a little bit um convoluted where the green was coming up through the brown but but they will still come back um but, yeah, I'm like you, you know, to get the most benefit you can even after dormancy and at the very last second, maybe late spring, late February, cut them back for the new foliage to come out, and uh, you'll, you'll get a, a more bang for the buck. Sure, and that's what I do. And then the thing most people don't realize is those ornamental grasses or grasses in general have flowers. Yes. And even some of the little bees, I was amazed with the types and, and numbers of bees there are in Georgia. And so, and, and Jim Quick has been great to, mm-hmm. to teach me this too. But so I was looking on my one of my grass plants, one day I'm like, I thought it looked like gnats almost and I go over there there are little tiny bees all over the grass flowers so people need to understand that's a pollinator plant too they're just not showy flowers right but they're profuse in some plants um and so it's it's been a my yard is kind of a, a ever-changing experience which Absolutely. I like that's what I wanted when you I know, we, we always think of the showy flowers being the big attractors or whatever and to some extent they are but um yeah I remember at the last show we talked a little bit about you know to increase pollination just in my vegetables and one of the things I plant is something that's not really showy but I plant buckwheat uh, and it's got a prolific white bloom. It's not what I would call super attractive, but it's um, same thing. You know, our hollies. You don't really think of them being a flowering plant per se, but I mean, the holly bushes in our yard, when when they're blooming, which they will um, in the spring, they bring in tons of honeybees. Uh, sure. They just love whatever that pollen is coming out of a honey, out of a uh, holly bush. They really seem to like it. No, that's that's, and I think that's so great that that. We talk about all the different type textures, types, everything mm-hmm. that so there's landscapes can be so diverse. And so obviously, as we talk, you probably realize I'm not a real big fan of the the monoculture either. Right. Just the one, and they do look not you know the real formal kind of things. I, I'm not again. I'm lazy. I would rather have the <laughs> the levels and the textures yeah. and the layers that you really don't have to do much to. And the that's water. a great point. You know, you said lazy. Um, <laughs> that's another key issue. Uh, you know, you have to think about hey, do I really enjoy 
you know, manicuring my <laughs> landscape and working with her, or whether I like to plant some things that, hey, once they're established, they're good to go, and I, I probably just need to, you know, walk past them once a year. Um, so there, there are ways to design a landscape to either be high maintenance or low maintenance, um, just right off the top of my head. If I had hybrid tea roses, that's not something you can just leave go. Um, you're going to have to camp out with them and pray over them and sure. protect them and, and, and maintain them to keep them alive. Uh, but then there's some plants like we call juniper, which are the, um, you know, the evergreen varieties of shrubs. And, and some of those, I mean, once you get them planted and established, they're good to go for years without ever pruning. They don't even like to be pruned. So things like that you have to consider, hey, do I want something high maintenance or is it something that's going to kind of take care of itself? Uh, of course, one of the more popular shrubs we may mention is the crepe myrtle. And sure. um, people just love planting those, and, and they're great plants. But uh, be real careful when you're selecting a crepe myrtle because there are so many variants out there now. I mean, a crepe myrtle is not a crepe myrtle. There are many cultivars. And some of the more popular ones, you see the white-blooming Natchez ones out there, people will plant them right up next to their house and have no idea that plant gets 45 to 50 exactly. feet tall. <laughs> uh, we do have smaller varieties. We have some that only get three or four foot sure. tall. So you have to make sure you're picking the right one um, for the site that you're going to plant it. And that uh, goes back to, to check the adult size before you plant it. Where Absolutely. You plant it. The mistake I made, and so and we'll go to break, but the mistake I made because I didn't have anything in the backyard, the tornado had cleared it, I planted them. Uh, I happened to have a pool. I would give it to anyone who wants it that could dig it out of the ground and move it. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> but um, I planted crepe myrtles around the pool. And they look so pretty until the wind blows. Oh, yeah. And then all those little flowers end up <laughs> in the pool. So they're beautiful, but and I they bring not. the pollinators in. They bees do. Bees love them. But, uh, bees love but them, but so does my pool. landed in the pool. <laughs> exactly. Well, Tony, while we go to our bottom of the hour break, we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk more about ornamentals and other things in the fall garden. You're listening to the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News on AM 1450 WKEU in Griffin, Georgia. Also heard on 102.3 FM. Also today being carried on 88.9 FM, The Rock, Georgia Public Radio in its finest. You can stream us live online at WKEUradio.com or take us with you wherever you go, courtesy the free WKEU app available for all smartphone and tablet devices. Our Thursday morning program with Dr. Honeycutt and Bob Westerfield continues after this. Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farms, We Build Forest, and Murray Company Realty, proud supporters of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus and proud to bring you this installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News over WKEU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and 88.9 FM, The Rock, Georgia Public Radio at its finest. The Harris's involvement with the students of today ensure for our community a brighter tomorrow. The 
temperature's still reading kind of high outside, but we're talking fall ornamentals and getting your yards and gardens ready for the fall season. For more of this morning's program, here is the Assistant Provost and Campus Director on the UGA Griffin Campus, Dr. Lou Honeycutt. Thank you, Tony. Welcome back, everybody. We're having another great show today with Bob Westerfield, Extension Consumer Horticulturalist for UGA and, and stationed or housed on the Griffin campus. Bob, welcome back. Thank you. We always It's always great. We can talk pollinators and plants all day long, which is great with you. It always makes the conversation easy. So let's kind of shift it back to ornamentals since okay. that's kind of where we're because I can talk shrubs and things all day too. But, um, but let's ornamentals, which, I, again, I mm-hmm. think they're great. I like perennial ornamentals are right. my favorite because, again, I'm lazy. <laughs> One time. But, um, when's the best time to start thinking about if if you're we always I always do this with you okay i'm a brand new homeowner yeah. i'm a brand new gardener i want to have an i want a pollinator garden i've li, i've listened to this radio show so i know i need to do that what it, what are kind of my first steps in, sure. the, in the fall well you know whether you're starting a brand new garden or maybe you're going to retrofit an existing landscape um in most cases, the fall, which we're right on the brink of, they say, um, <laughs> is the time to actually plant the ornamentals. Um, when is the highest sell time of, of plants and, and planting? It's usually in the springtime, but yeah. it's completely opposite of what we would, would <laughs> recommend to folks. And the reason is this. If you're, you're planting ornamentals into the, in the ground in the fall, um, that plant has more likelihood of establishing as the temperature's cooling off. The top of the plant's already going to begin to shut down and kind of go into a dormant state. The roots, however, in Georgia, we, we just don't get cold enough. The roots will continue to thrive and grow throughout the winter in Georgia. So you're establishing a good root system, hopefully, uh, during the fall and winter. So when spring comes, and, you know, spring lasts about two days in Georgia, <laughs> exactly. and then we go to summer, um, you're sort of prepared for the hot temperature. Versus, you know, a lot of people wait, and they wait till springtime. They get their first little warm-up, and they want to plant, put the plants in the ground. You really have to nurture them then because, uh, like we just mentioned, it's, it's only a short window away from hot temperatures, which are much more stressful. Um, I would say overall in Georgia, you know, we do have our little cold spells, and people and people tend to worry more about their plants when it gets cold around <laughs> Georgia. I never get that because it's really the heat that will get them more than anything. Sure. Um, and we certainly have had plenty of that. So, yeah, fall is a great time to thinking about, uh, be pl- thinking about planting new landscape, pollinators now there you know if you go back to the annuals again there's some of those are going to have to be spring planted if we're, we're planting some of the tender um annual flowers that we might be, we mentioned earlier um zinnias and petunias and and marigolds that that's that's a spring planting thing but as far as um perennials and deep-rooted type ornamentals uh, yeah fall planting is going to be a great time to start that and the you know and I, I guess I should make clear everybody I don't hate annuals I'm just too right. lazy to deal with annuals but <laughs> and when people come out to my house I've had several that say well you need more color here you need more you need some annuals here and what I tell them is take the whole look at the whole system before you say that because there's color in different places all the time it's right. just not that show annuals are great for that showy pop of color like petunias or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. But, again, I, I would prefer to – I'm going to attract just as many or more pollinators with the little bit of color that changes all through the summer, fall, and winter. I, th- I think that's the key, and, and probably, you know, one of the best ways to do it is, is to try to focus on the perennials that have flower to them, or at least we talked about the attractive bark and, and color of the foliage um, in our home garden um you know we've got a ton of flowering perennial plants now again i i'm pretty i can sit on the porch and watch my wife out there because she loves the <laughs> landscape thank goodness uh but she does mess around with the annuals too but sure. they're normally going to be um s- small little highlight spots or focal points sometimes it'll be a wheelbarrow full of dirt that sure. you put some annuals in uh just for a little bit of change out color but beyond that you know we have perennial flowers like um 
uh, or even our laura petalums are blooming. Uh, you got your crepe myrtles and uh, the butterfly bushes butterfly and everything bushes, else yeah. that's going to continue to to come back and flower. So there's always some seasonal color. And the but the, talking about butterfly bushes, mm-hmm. which I'm a huge fan of, but mine continued blooming all last year, all up into November because the weather had stayed really nice. Absolutely. And pretty. So I mean, there was pollinator food for a long period of time, and and again, a lot of the pollinators quit showing up, but. There was always some out there. There's so. always something out there, right? And, and seasonal interest. Sure, and there, to me, there's so many different great choices. But butterfly bushes have so many color choices, and mm-hmm. and I've been told, and tell me if I'm wrong, but to attract them, and I try to do this to attract the most pollinators, you want to vary the colors. I've seen some. It's kind of like crepe myrtles. Mm-hmm. I've seen some, and it's really awesome. The whole driveway will be white crepe myrtles, the Natchez or something, right? And it's beautiful, and it's very formal looking. But I like to have like as many different colors as I sure. can get just to attract different things. And I've always been told with uh, butterfly bushes that try to get all the colors you can because it'll attract different things. And there's nowadays, I mean, we have so many cultivars out there. I think there's, you know, there's purple, white, and pink, and all other different kinds of colors. Uh, the one thing on a butterfly bush, it, it's sort of low maintenance until it gets to about the end of winter. Um, <laughs> and then you basically just need to take a butcher to it. And, and I cut mine almost virtually okay. back to the ground. Uh, again, I leave it up there for the fall interest. Um, and, you know, you've got even the, the flower pods look kind of attractive on the end of them as they're blowing around. But then when it gets to be February or whatever and everything's getting a haircut, um, I take mine virtually down to the ground, just leaving a, a couple of small stems on the bottom uh, and it comes right out of there Absolutely. again in the springtime and they look they're, be- they're beautiful plants and then two that that i also like that we can touch on and, and certainly carol Rollbacker's had a big part in, in these in, in the state of georgia and the world but are vitex or chase trees yes. in abelia they're my the I, I wish i could go to the to a nursery just mm-hmm. anywhere and just pick up carol's varieties because it's, it's a little tough to do and you don't <laughs> know if you're getting them or not sometimes but right. um but the varieties i've got for here in the area the 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 whether you call it vitex or chase tree mm-hmm. or whatever they're beautiful and my gosh do they attract pollinators they do um if you're unfamiliar with a, a vitex or chase tree it, it kind of looks a little bit like a, a butterfly bush on kinda steroids or, or marijuana <laughs> or marijuana <laughs> i was gonna say because it's got the leaf just like a marijuana leaf and uh yeah we we're growing it right behind it is the, not right marijuana behind. please not do marijuana. not be drying so if you come to my office uh, we've got a bunch of them out in the back it's not a marijuana trial but and anyway. those are big back behind y'all they are office. yeah i think uh, that was some of the ones that carol had developed uh, but they put out a prolific bloom that blooms good lord almost all summer long um and then the abelias abelias a an evergreen well i call it semi-deciduous right. but um shrub that you know you think about the the old time abelias which would be the grandiflora with the white blooms and edward goucher with kind of a purple bloom and those are standbys and standards in the industry but carol come out with some really cool varieties with red foliage and all kinds of different things and i I think they're starting to show up in the industry a little bit so i think they are too i mean and the the great thing about them too even after the flowers drop the the flower pod or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it top flower stays in the ones i've got are almost a pink or a purple it almost looks like a another flowering part of it and they're just they're incredibly beautiful and durable and i planted some of them in the worst so i didn't mm-hmm. amend it at all i'm like i'm just gonna try this and see they have flourished in georgia red clay <laughs> absolutely um and you know it's another thing you just want to make sure what you're planting on the is because uh, there are some that actually stay fairly small and others that will turn into a monster um you know the abelia ground the floor we just mentioned um you know that's capable of getting 15 feet 
tall and wide, so it's not something to be put right next to the door. So right. make sure what you're planting. Same thing with the spirea family of ornamentals. Um, there's plenty of different varieties out there. There are some dwarf ones that are only a foot tall, and others will you know turn into a in, into a giant. So absolutely. And so another one just to mention, everyone just uh, just because I like it so well in my landscape are gardenias. Yes. Number one, the smell is incredible when they're right. blooming, and they tend to you know I get the big profuse bloom, mm-hmm. but then periodically all the way through October, November, I'm going to get blooms on the plants. Absolutely. Not, not as many, but just blooms enough to attract things. Yeah, they're a wonderful summer bloomer. Um, they actually bloom on new wood, which means you can cut them back pretty hard, you know, in February in the wintertime, uh, and they're going to sprout back out and they'll bloom on that new wood. Um, the larger variety ones are, you know, there's one called August Beauty. There's another one called Mystery. It's got large leaves, puts out the prolific large white blooms, very fragrant. But if you say, I don't really need a big plant like that, well, then you can go with Gardenia radicans, which is almost a ground cover type uh, gardenia that grows along flower beds or along a walkway. Um, again, you're going to get a bunch of white blooms in there and just super attractive uh, plant. Maybe brings in some pollinators. I really hadn't noticed. It will bring in uh, white flies if you're not careful. I, I, I knew, and we had to talk about that. It certainly exactly. will. And when I noticed that, you and I, you'd been on the show one time, and mm-hmm. then I was out watering one evening, and the water hit the plant. Yeah. And it looked like a cloud of dust coming up. I'm like, oh, I know exactly right. what that is. <laughs> we don't usually get the call till someone calls and said, I, I've got disease on my, uh, on, you know, on my, my plants. And um, they're like, well. You sure it's disease and what it is it's sooty mold it's a, a black mold that attaches to the sticky stuff that's secreted by the white flies um, as they're feeding so the real issue is the white flies that are feeding normally on the back of the leaves so you don't necessarily see them unless you look for them but there's a sooty mold that's floating around the air everywhere and it attaches to that sick sticky substance the sooty mold itself really doesn't really hurt the plant much but but it's just a telltale sign that hey you got a worse issues here right, on your gardenias. white flies which we know how detrimental white flies are to the vegetable <laughs> industry they the are, and, and they've become, you know, very resistant to a lot of the over-the-counter chemicals that we might try to apply to, to knock them out. Absolutely. So that's a great segue to chemicals. Mm-hmm. Let's, so we're get we've planted our ornamentals. So we've we've got every we've got woody ornamentals. Mm-hmm. We've got non-woody ornamentals. We're doing good, but then we start seeing some white flies or whatever, or bees or whatever. Whatever right. we see is it might be a pest out there, and we just go to the box store wherever and buy the first insecticide we see we mix it ourselves and if a little bit does good then a whole lot does better and we just spray everything is that good or bad i thought that's true <laughs> only with money. Me. i think it's only with money if oh, a little okay, bit's yeah. good a lot's better i think that's how it works for me um you know you really you, this this boils down to what we started the show with talking about you know beneficials and pollinators that hey you know just because you see insects out there on your plants make sure they're actually bad guys and not good guys because uh, the good guys will land out there as well and they may be landing on someone else's damage and you think they're causing it so make sure it's a positive id if you can if you see caterpillars chewing on the leaves and yeah, that's that's a positive ID. Maybe you want to spray something specific for them. I always like to recommend folks starting off with maybe the the lesser powerful chemicals first and working their way up. Uh, now, if, you, if white flies are your problem, you might have to go right to the top. Uh, <laughs> but if it's things like caterpillars or aphids, which are pearly prolific in the fall even in the winter time um, you can use things just like what we call safer soap these are organic soapy compounds that really have no poison in them they actually suffocate the insect Um, insects breathe through their 
their bodies um, and their exoskeleton. And these little soapy-type products get in their skeleton, so to speak, on the outside and, and basically makes them unable to breathe. And so it's sort of a suffocation. But it's a very light, toxic, not even toxic, really, chemical. You can make your own using a couple of tablespoons of like a liquid detergent soap that okay. you might use in your kitchen with a gallon of water. And that will knock out a lot of the easy-to-kill insects. And from there, you might want to start moving up the chain a little bit. There are plenty of organic insecticides out there you might want to try. Um, pyrethrin, neem oil. Um, if it's caterpillars, maybe BT, which is Bacillus thuringiensis. These are chemicals that you can find now fairly regularly, even in the big box stores and certainly garden centers. Um, why are they safer? Well, they're just as toxic in some cases, and they will kill beneficials if they hit them, but they have a very low residual, meaning, you know, you, you put them out there for a specific problem on the insect and hitting as many bad insects as you can, but a couple of days down the road from now, there's not going to be a residual killing effect. So it's much safer than some of the products that are man-made that might work for two and three weeks. Sure. And the, the whole point is, is um, there are things out there that need to stay out there and, and Absolutely. Live, stay living and do all that. The only caterpillar pillar I would I had to get used to and I to, to not get rid of is I had milkweed plant I still do yes. milkweed planted and the first and fortunately I knew I, I would have asked if I had known but I already knew which one it was and there were monarch caterpillars on it and so my first inkling my first inkling was they're chewing all the leaves I need to do something but then I saw the caterpillar and thought okay I can I can deal with this for a little yes. while <laughs> the one interesting thing we usually get late in the summer is um, on our parsley we get the swallowtail oh, butterflies okay. uh, and it's kind of a black striped caterpillar and I don't know why they're so specific to liking parsley <laughs> but they will get all over them, and I just can't bring myself to spray them because I say, well, they're going to turn them pretty cool-looking butterflies, sure. actually. So and the butterfly itself is har- you know, harmless. But, um, yeah, I do see those come in. And, and then uh, every now and then in the garden we'll see some tomato hornworms, which are, like, gigantic, and they got a little spike on the back exactly. of their tail. Yeah, and uh, those are – usually I leave them alone, too, because they're going to eat a couple leaves and move on. So Sure. But, uh, and then right now what I'm seeing a lot in the trees, segueing off a little mm-hmm. bit more minerals, are the bagworms. They yes. seem to be really heavy this year. Absolutely, yeah. So we get kind of two classes of that. We get the fall tent worm, which you're probably seeing now. In the springtime, we get the eastern tent caterpillars, okay. which form up more towards the crotch of the uh, – Okay tree and now we're seeing some of the fall webworms that are towards the outer edges they seem to love pecan trees they do. Uh, hickory anything along those lines <laughs> so they'll get on other stuff uh you know people will call us and we're like you know well you know it's, it's really not going to kill a tree you might lose part of that branch it would, they were, they're easy to kill. I mean, you could take any over-the-counter insecticide pretty much and spray and knock them out. But in most cases, it's it's going to be a very short-term phenomena. Uh, they're going to be gone, and the tree's probably not going to even know what happened. So, sure. You know, I, and, you know, half-time, they're 30 feet up in the right, exactly. Place, so you're probably going to get more on you <laughs> spraying than, than you are on the bugs. So exactly, I, or fall out of the tree exactly. trying to get up there to it. My father-in-law used to, he had a pecan orchard, and he was worried about, you know, production. He But he was kind of old school. He would take these giant bamboo rods and wrap some kind of old, t-shirt on whatever soaking in kerosene and light it and stick that torch up there and burn them out i don't want folks to be doing that we'll be calling the fire department but uh you know there are other ways to, hey, to deal with it so whatever it takes right that's exactly it was okay. hilarious it, yeah there's a the old time ways sometimes are the best but um certainly the uh certainly could be but so as we're we're gonna go to break here in just a minute but just if you were if someone came to you and said okay bob i want to i've got a plot that's Four by four, and I want the I want some incredible color. Just it's going to be kind of pop 
perennial color is going to pop for me, what would you tell them to plant? I know there's a lot of conditions like what's your soil like, what's the shade yeah, like. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to like, ask a few more questions sure, about sure. sun and so forth. Um, you know, yeah. The way I always deal with that is I start asking the folks questions, and I say, you know, what's important to you? Do you want season-long interest? You know, you do want just a spectacular show in the springtime, late summer. So I'd, I'd have to ask a few questions. My suggestion would be, hey, let, let, let's try to let's try to pick a few things that are going to bloom all season long. So even in the winter, you're thinking, well, nothing really blooms besides some annuals. No, there are plants out there. Sure. Uh, Helleborus comes to mind, Lenten Rose, which is a f- kind of a late fall winter blooming plant. Witch Hazel, which is a small tree that blooms in the wintertime, you know, yellow blooms. So there's your some winter blooming color. Um, for early spring, again, throw in some, some bunches of forsythia, maybe in a cluster to have some really early yellow bells, as people call them. Um, and then let's move into the into the summer with all kinds of uh, spectacular looking abelias like we mentioned earlier spireas maybe a few lorapetalums in the background which will bloom almost all season long up to christmas um, so you can throw in a whole mix and match of things and then probably have some some nice conical shapes just to change the shape up a little bit in the form of some of the holly bushes we talked about N- um, Nellie R. stevens holly with a very dark black foliage that would kind of be a nice background even though it's going to bloom and put berries on uh, and bring in pollinators again it's not the most prolific feature uh and then you depending how much room we have we might we might stick a tree or two in there, there you go. um if we get a little bit of shade coming there we might throw in a um, japanese maple which i think would be pretty uh possibly a kuza dogwood which is a japanese dogwood or even um potentially maybe some of the redbud varieties oh yeah i love redbuds mm-hmm. there let's well, see i think and that's a that's great advice and great and you know i put that that problem to you but mm-hmm. the first thing you said well, i think is great is you, you would ask them questions and i think yes. that's what i'm going to reverse that on the person and say before you do that there is an incredible amount of information yeah. online through Cooperative Extension that that tells you things just like that. That says don't just go buy a whole bunch of things and throw them out there. Exactly. Chances are they're not going to work, or some exactly. Aren't and we've got our local county extension offices around the states uh, where folks can go in. They've got publications oftentimes sitting up on the wall, or they can print them all for you on almost any topic almost that we talk about today. That's right. Exactly. Well, I tell you what, let's take our our last break of the day. We'll come back and do some finish up things and talk a little more about ornamentals in the landscape. Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farms, We Build Forest, and Murray Company Realty, proud supporters of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus and proud to bring you this installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News over WKEU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and 88.9 FM, The Rock, Georgia Public Radio at its finest. The Harris's involvement with the students of today ensure for our community a brighter tomorrow. In news and announcements from the University of Georgia Griffin Campus, the Dundee Cafe, located in the heart of the UGA Griffin Campus, offers fresh culinary delights for breakfast and lunch Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m., along with take-home pre-ordered casseroles, which are off the chain. Chef Marcy Bradbury and her team from From the Farm prepare scrumptious meals daily and offer specialty coffee served both inside and on the outside veranda. The Dundee Cafe is a welcoming place to meet and eat for the entire community. 
The campus store, located on the first floor of the Flint Building at 1109 Experiment Street, has new UGA and Georgia Bulldog items arriving weekly. Get yours to get prepared for the 2019 football season, which is just around the corner. The shelves are currently stocked with officially licensed apparel, souvenir, and gifts. These campus store hours are Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. You can schedule your own UGA Griffin Campus tour. Visit the UGA Griffin Campus website to schedule a tour and learn all you can about the UGA degrees offered right here on the Griffin Campus. Or if you'd like, feel free to simply schedule a time to come out and see all the wonderful aspects of the campus. Visit www.griffin.uga.edu and click the Campus Tour link. For information on degrees offered at the University of Georgia Griffin campus and information on current undergraduate and graduate degrees offered through the five colleges, visit griffin.uga.edu or call with more with this morning's University of Georgia Griffin Campus News with our host of the program, Dr. Lou Honeycutt, and his special guest for the day, Bob Westerfield. Thank you, Tony. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We've been having a fun time with Bob Westerfield. We always do. He's always mm-hmm. He has a wealth of information on all things plantings, um, whether it's uh, garden vegetables or, mm-hmm. or ornamental landscapes or whatever it might be. So we've, we've kind of shifted back and forth between woody shrubs and right. ornament. We've done all kinds of things today, but let's talk about pruning trees. I mean, middle of mm-hmm. summer is not a good time to prune a tree, but I see a lot of people doing it. Yeah, my dad, I mean, <laughs> how long have I been in this? And I said, Dad, it's not time to prune me. He doesn't care. He's just going to mow out down everything. And uh, he, he kind of gets away with it because he's pruning such vigorous shrubs. Sure. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really not the time to be doing pruning um, substantially certainly any dead material that should come out immediately any time of the year you got dead branch or stems take them out um, if you have to you know prune a few branches that are in the way or causing you know a problem with mowing or something sure take those out now but heavy pruning for the most part um, we're going to wait until early part of the year and just a real simple pruning lesson because people are like well I'm confused if I should prune it now or I'm going to lose the blooms uh, real simple um, if it's a flowering summer plant in other words it's, it's going to start flowering in late spring through the summer examples would be crepe myrtles we talked about the gardenias laura petalums that kind of bloom all summer you want to prune them in the winter time so late february is a great time to, pl- to prune if it's an early blooming plant and we mentioned a couple of those earlier forsythia maybe dogwood, azaleas, anything that blooms very early, you want to prune them right after they bloomed. So that would probably be in the area of April or May. Okay. Okay. And the reason is those early bloomers are actually blooming on last year's wood. Gotcha. So if we went in there in February and pruned them, we'd knock the blooms off. It wouldn't kill the plant, but you just wouldn't have a show that year. Sure. The summer bloomers are blooming on this year's wood, so they're going to bloom on new wood. You can prune them back hard in the wintertime, and boom, they kick out new growth and going to and are going to bloom just fine. So <clears throat> again, it all boils down to knowing what you planted and knowing what 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 the what the best treatment is for the things that are it in does. And you know, we talked about the materials we've got online. Um, that there's certainly plenty of stuff out there. The, the county agents and and I mean, I've got you know. 
I worked in a nursery before I actually worked with UGA, so I have got a lot of years of experience learning this material. It's not like something that you can gain just overnight, but but we have the resources now probably you know, just better than we've ever had before where you can get your answer. I mean, you got your cell phone and, and Google, <laughs> you're, you're one answer away from, from knowing when to prune something and so forth. And just, you know, I always caution folks when you do look up information on anything, including plants or whatever, try to stick to the EDU websites, the educational ones. Exactly. We, we want you to come to U- <gasps> University of Georgia, but, I mean, if you happen to get something out of Clemson or Auburn. Uh, Ooh, can you, you mention know, that on uh, the show? I don't know if it's legal <laughs> or not. But, um, you know, hey, at least you're, you're probably getting research-based information that's non-biased um you know there are plenty of little home gardens garden things out there i'm not saying all the information is wrong but i do see some things occasionally are kind of i'm not sure if i'd go with that so you have to just be careful where you're getting the information well we've become such a youtube society that you know everything everything's a youtube away and what the problem is that i found and, and i recommend people to go local or look for local because the youtube video may be in new york that and is they're correct. talking about pruning something that grows up there. Well, it's not going to be the same down here. But if you follow their directions, you know, it's YouTube. But, but edu, yeah. .edu is a great resource for Absolutely. <laughs> you're, talk, you're talking about like up north. Um, one of the things I often get called out to is to, to look at a plant and, and figure out what's wrong with it. And, and a lot of times this gets back to what we talked about, citing the plant correctly. But sometimes our landscape architects are not even in the state that are designing corporate buildings and all. And so they'll put plants in there that are typically grown in Vermont. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've been up and looked at something like a, a Scotch pine or, or a, you know, a spruce, blue spruce tree. And they're like, well, what's wrong? It's starting to turn brown. I'm like, uh, it doesn't live here. It's like, you know, four climatic zones too south for, for this plant. So just be real careful if you try to, you know, select a plant that you're not sure of because we, the main thing is, I mean, we talked about, you know, putting in the right soil and the sunlight and this and that, but, hey, does it even grow in our climate? Because not everything is going to make it here in this state. Um, there are some things that, believe it or not, on some cases it could be almost too cold here in the state for a few plants sure. to grow as a, as a perennial, um, but on many cases. It's going to be that, hey, you know, it's just a little bit too hot here for a lot of these different pine species and things like that to, to make it. And that's where I love resources like Cooperative Extension or the research garden at the campus because, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying anything against box stores or, or any nursery in general, but a lot of places bring in showy things to sell and they look beautiful when they're clumped together under the shade, getting Correct. watered every day in the store. We fall into that, oh, I want that beautiful right. thing in my yard. You put it in your yard and it dies in two days. Well, yes, you're going to get a guarantee to get another plant, but that one's going to die too because exactly. they grow in Hawaii or wherever they got them from. So and, be careful. Choose your plants by Absolutely, zone. and you can't necessarily trust, you know, like you said, the, the, the some of the small nursery vendors, I think, would be very accurate in what they would have growing sure. and what they could sell you that would live. Uh, but some of the big box stores, I mean, I worked on the other side of it. I was in sales of plants, and not to mention any stores in particular, but you could call the box stores up, and, I mean, you could – you could sell them an igloo to come to Georgia, and they would buy it sometimes because the buyers weren't that knowledgeable. Sure. So you'd say, hey, we you know, we got a great deal on these today. Why don't you buy you know, 30,000 of them and send them out to your stores in Atlanta? And they're like, oh, that sounds good. Well, it might be a great deal, but the plant doesn't make it in Georgia. Right. Uh, but they don't know that. So sure. I see the same thing in vegetables. I'll see you know, things that don't typically make it here that they're, they're pushing in the stores. And I was like, uh, you know, probably don't want to grow that or buy that. So just, need, you know, particularly if you're going to spend money on uh, good money on plants, you do a little research uh, can consult your county agent make sure it's going to make it if you're not sure
I think that's great advice. I mean, it's it's you know better to ask and get the answer. And and yes, they may say no, don't buy that. It won't grow here. But then listen to the advice. Uh, exactly. <laughs> unless you're that. Unless you're my dad, and you just go. Well, they or different. yeah, or my mom. So it's <laughs> yeah. the same way. But well, I tell you what, we're about out of time today, Bob. As always, thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us more about enjoy. landscapes and ornamentals. And we talk trees. We talk about a lot of things yeah. that, that we may not stay on track, but it's always good information. So Tony, I guess that'll do it for us today. We'll be back again next week. We thank you for joining us this morning on the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. Dr. Honeycutt will now embark on a 167-hour break. He'll be back next Thursday morning for our next installment. Be sure to join us between 9 and 10 a.m. every Thursday morning for the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News.